This is Pathways. I'm Randy Brutkowitz, and today we're talking with Dr. Ushma Neal. Dr. Neal received her PhD degree in biomedical engineering from Northwestern University, where she studied pulmonary mechanics and mathematical modeling. She then went on to Imperial College London for a postdoc in which she studied vascular permeability. After her postdoc, she worked as a manuscript editor at the journal Nature Medicine and then became the executive editor at the Journal of Clinical Investigation. Dr. Neal arrived at Memorial Sloan Kettering in 2012, where she's now the Vice President of Scientific Education and Training. What led Dr. Neal to go from pulmonary mechanics to journal editing to leading scientific education and training at a world-class research institution? Let's find out. Ushma, welcome to Pathways. So you've had a interesting path where you you're studying pulmonary mechanics at Northwestern. You continued some work as a, as a postdoc, but then you came back to the states and you were you started doing editing. How did that come about? Well, I'd like to say that I'm the poster child for alternative careers in science. Honestly. Um, uh, the reason that I got into editing was entirely accidental, if I'm honest. Um, as you noted, I did my postdoc abroad. I was in London for two years on a Marshall Scholarship at Imperial College London, and it was fantastic. And my joking answer is that I got into a bar fight and I got kicked out of the country and had to leave, but that's not actually true. It's just really entertaining to say. Um, I'd love to be able to be the sort of person that actually ever had that exciting of a life. But really, it was just that my visa ran out and I had to move back to the States. And at the time, people still were very much reading paper journals. And so I was flipping through um, an issue of Nature. And in the back, in the classifieds, was a small ad as uh, maternity leave coverage for the editor-in-chief of Nature Medicine. And at the time, my geographic goals were just as uh, important as my career goals. And I had always wanted to live in New York after having lived in Chicago and London. And uh, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, also wanted to live in New York. So we started looking around for opportunities. And I saw that the Nature Publishing Group was hiring and they were based in New York. And so I sent in a cover letter and a writing sample and got a phone interview. And then they invited me to come to the New York office for an interview. And that went really well. So um, I, at the time, I was also thinking about doing a second postdoc or whether or not I would go into industry. But I got there and I met the people and it sounded really interesting. And I had been reading Nature Medicine through my graduate and postdoctoral career and thought that it would be an interesting um, thing to do. And at the time, I really thought that it was just going to be a six-month gig and I could get my sea legs about me and figure out New York and what my next steps would be and didn't think that being an editor for six months would be a detriment. In fact, I thought that it might be a real positive going into a PI position if I was ever going to do that. But as it turned out, I, I loved it. You know, I really, really enjoyed being an editor, reading about um, tuberculosis one day and asthma and allergy and all sorts of physiology, you know, and probably learned more in those first six months at Nature Medicine than I did in all of graduate school. So what, so on a, uh, 
a typical day, what were your responsibilities in that role at Nature Medicine? It's essentially all journal club all the time and or preparing for journal club. So as a manuscript editor, um, you're assigned your slice of the pie. So at that time, there were four of us that were editors. And so I had pretty much all of physiology or I split physiology with one other editor. She took all of the neuro and the metabolism stuff and I took everything else. And there was somebody who covered cancer and somebody who covered um, infectious disease and a lot of immunology. Um, so you get assigned manuscripts that are um, in your area and you read them and make an initial determination on whether or not you want to send that manuscript out for review. And we would have um, meetings every couple of days to talk about the manuscripts we were going to send out to review. And you had to convince your colleagues that this was the sort of thing that you could see on the pages of Nature Medicine. And then at that point, you got to decide who should be reviewing that and managing the review process and then managing the decisions based on the reviews that came back. Um, we wrote some things for the front half of the journal. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of correspondence because at, a, at, at the journals that I worked, the accept rates were, I don't know, five to 9%. And so you make a lot of people unhappy, but you know, any editor worth their salt should be able to stand behind the decisions that they make. So you have a lot of correspondence back and forth with authors to give them a sense or an idea of what it was that didn't meet your particular editorial bar. You, so you spent two years there. So it was obviously more than covering for somebody who was on maternity leave. Uh, what Then you went to JCI, Journal of Clinical Investigation, where you spent nine years. So how did that opportunity come about? So this is when um, I say to everybody, get your jobs both based on your smarts, but mostly based on your network. So I had been at a Keystone meeting on arrhythmia in Santa Fe. And through the course of that meeting, I met uh, a physician scientist from Columbia University named Andrew Marks. And the JCI is a journal that runs in a slightly different way in that the editors of, of the journal are all physicians or scientists at a specific university for, and it, the editorial board stays at that university for five years, and then it moves to a different university. So Dr. Marks was editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Investigation for the five years when it was based at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. And he had an executive editor who was a former colleague of mine from Nature. She had um, been the editor-in-chief of Nature Genetics. And uh, a week after meeting Dr. Marks, um, this woman and her husband left New York to go to San Francisco to go help launch the Public Library of Science journals. And so he remembered that, hey, I just met this other editor last week at this meeting or two weeks ago at this meeting, and she seemed to be quite keen and smart and asked the right kind of questions. And so he called me and said, would you be interested in interviewing for this position? And I thought to myself, okay, so I go from assistant editor to executive editor in one step. Yes, of course, I'm going to go interview for that position. And at the time, there weren't nearly as many journals in this space um, as there are now. And it was the main competitor journal to Nature Medicine. And I thought, why not jump at this opportunity and happily through all the interviews that I had, they offered me the position. And so, yes, I got to step from, from being manuscript editor to executive editor. 
Yeah, it's opportunities and network that's really great and taking advantage of those opportunities. So, so after your nine years at JC, I know you're still affiliated with them too. You're, you're like us on the other side of the camera uh, for some of the things that you do for them. But how did the opportunity at Memorial Sloan Kettering come about? I know that, that you're chief of staff for Craig Thompson, but uh, how, did that, how did that come about? That's again about using your network. Um, so I had been executive editor for nine years, um, four years while the journal was at Columbia and then the journal moved to the University of Pennsylvania and I was able to commute there one day a week and they were happy for me to stay in New York and, and come to Philadelphia at least one if not two days a week. And so I stayed through their five year tenure. And then in May of 2012, the journal moved to Duke University and the University of North Carolina. And um, I loved that job. I loved being editor of uh, executive editor of the JCI. I like to say that I have three children, but the JCI was my first baby. And I loved it. I was devoted to it, part of the community, really enjoyed my work there. But my geographicals were still just as critical to me um, as, as anything else in my family. And we just were not able to move to North Carolina. And so I tried flying there once a week and I did that for a good couple of months and it was just exhausting. And I think after 11 years of being an editor, I was also ready for a different challenge and was starting to think about what else I could do or where my skills might best be deployed. And I was at an event for the New York Academy of Sciences, their annual gala, which brings together most of the physicians and, and scientists and associated people within New York City for this event every November. And I was sat there and just at the table behind me with his back to me was Dr. Craig Thompson, who had just moved to New York to become president and CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he is also very involved with the Journal of Clinical Investigation and the society that publishes the JCI. And it was like I could see the wheels spinning in his head. Her job just moved to North Carolina. I just moved to New York. I could use someone with her skills on my team. Um, and he had been looking for someone to be his chief of staff. He um, had been working with the chief of staff of the previous president, Harold Varmus, but she was getting ready to retire and I think was, was looking to move on. And so he was looking to replace that position. So, you know, I started talking to Dr. Thompson at that point and came in and met about 15 other people and thought really hard about what sort of skills I wanted to build um, for the rest of my career. And, you know, it was really great working for the JCI. I had being an editor, um, you know, I, I had done it for 11 years. And even though the challenges were different every day and the science was different every day, um, I hadn't really had much managerial experience. I certainly had no financial experience or political experience. I had never really worked in a hospital on strategy and innovation, didn't know anything about insurance and the way that a hospital works. And it was um, a really interesting time to get into a place like Memorial Sloan Kettering where there were massive changes in the way that Medicare and Medicaid work and you know, just a vast expansion. And so it was a really interesting opportunity for me to also get into the cockpit of, you know, uh, an operation that was growing. So at 
the time when I joined, there were about 14,000 employees at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And now it's uh, closer to, I think, 18 or 19,000. So it's a place that was growing and it was a real opportunity for me to learn a lot of skills. So it seems to me that if you think about the being an editor and where you don't have say, lots of supervisory experience or managerial experience, and as a chief of staff, you organize everything. And that's, maybe that's your, some of your skills as editor were helpful in, in, in that job, and, and perhaps you could tell us about that. But there's had to be other areas of the job that you didn't have any background for, but you yet nonetheless had to do it and find the skills. Well, I'd, I'd say that you've put your finger on it exactly. There were certain um, skills that I'd like to say that I, I brought to the job in terms of diplomacy. As I mentioned, you know, when you spend most of your day um, rejecting things, um, you get both a thick skin as well as an ability to communicate well about what it is we're looking or how to get to that goal and in the meantime, you do have to reject somebody. So I think a lot of what we did was figure out how to say no or how to play chess towards what was going to be best for the institution and how to build towards those goals. So I think skills of diplomacy um, were some that I brought to the job and certainly some that were sharpened while in that job because the, the realms were just completely different from what I was used to dealing with. Um, but absolutely, it was an education on so many different things, board, like dealing with a board and governance, um, fundraising and donors, um, municipal politics, state politics, federal politics, um, learning all about those different things and how they feed into both running an organization just from the point of view of how do you, how are you a leader of 14,000 people and how do you make strategic decisions that are going to help advance um, an institution like Memorial Sloan Kettering in its nation as, um, as a cancer center, not something that's a tertiary care hospital that's delivering babies and taking care of heart failure and all those things is just cancer. Um, but furthermore, I mean, just from the HR perspective and how do you grow and how do you sustain and grantsmanship and HR related, you know, the, that was usually um, where, where I learned the most. But also, just I, I, I keep coming back to it. I didn't really have much of a handle on finance at all. And I think I got a certainly a master's quality education in finance while I was in that position. How long was a typical day in that role? Let's say at the beginning and towards the end. Well, so um, that was something that I was really honest with Dr. Thompson about. Even uh, it was maybe the second thing that I said in my interview with him that if he was looking for someone to work 80 to 100 hours a week, it wasn't going to be me. Um, I am a mother and I'm super proud of that. And I had no intention of missing my children's childhood. Um, when I joined, they were three, four, and seven, and now they are nine, 10, and 13. And so I had no plans on working 80 hours a week. He could, you know, reliably bank on getting anywhere between 40 and 60. And when it was needed, yes, of course, I would work 80 to 100 hours a week, but that was really rare that that was ever required. Um, so I tried to do everything that I could to, to be really clear about that from the beginning to set expectations accordingly. I'd like to think I'm really pretty efficient and can multitask and can take on a lot of different things at the same time. 
So I'd like to think that I was able to get um, the entirety of the job done. I mean, obviously there's always more to be done, um, but the expectation was that I was going to be in the office between 8, 8.30 and 5, 5.30 to 6 o'clock. And he embraced that approach, Dr. Thompson did, um, because he still is actively running a lab. And he liked the idea that he could set an agenda such that people within the institution would know that he was going to be departing from the president's office around 5 or 5.30 every day. And you know, obviously there are aberrations, but that he could go to his lab at that point and make sure that he was spending some period of the day dedicated either to clinical side things or to, to laboratory practice. So we were able to set that up. And I, you know, I arrived fairly early in his presidency um, and tried as much as we could to set the tone, especially around appropriate working hours. I think that's a really important message too for folks to think about as they listen that you're, you have to have your life's priorities in place. And that's to ensure that you don't feel you're suffering on either end. I mean, I definitely define myself as a scientist and a mother, um, and maybe even in that order, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to shirk one responsibility for the other. And um, I've, you know, always strived for appropriate work-life balance. Obviously, one bleeds into the other um, at any given time, but they're both really critical. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I think they, they call it now what work-life integration because that they are in, inextricably connected. So you, you've been the, your chief of staff for Dr. Thompson and then from there, so how long were you in that role for? Four years. Four years. And then you made a transition to the scientific training and education of uh, trainees at Memorial Sloan Kettering. How did that come about? And was that a new position that, that uh, you basically invented? So the, the nice thing about that view from the cockpit is that you get to see the whole, um, the whole place. And after about three, three and a half years, I think um, a scientist in me, as I said, that's one of the, the words that I use as a keyword for myself, was um, itching to get back into something that was a little bit more scientific because if I'm honest, that role in the president's office was largely administrative and it was such an education and I really value that time. Um, but the scientist in me wasn't really doing a lot. As you mentioned before, um, I preserved at least a footprint at the JCI. I'm still editor at large. So I kept a role there, but um, you know, increasingly it wasn't really nourishing me professionally, the role that I had. So I was able to look at that view and see where I thought there was a hole and where I thought I could add value. And it was, I'd say, nine months to a year into the tenure of the new um, director of, our, of cancer research here, a man named Juan Massagay. So uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering is the umbrella term over the Memorial Hospital for Cancer and Allied Diseases and the Sloan Kettering Institute for Cancer Research. So he's the director of the Sloan Kettering Institute. And he was new in this role and, you know, still figuring out all of the different things that he had to do. And he came in one day to one of our um, meetings. So there were often meetings between the physician in chief, the scientific director, and Dr. Thompson as the president, and their collective chiefs of staff. And at one point, Dr. Massagay said, you know, I don't wake up every day and think about education. 
And if I don't, it doesn't get done. So he was starting to think about how he was going to answer um, the various educational needs of a place like Memorial Sloan Kettering, which has five different graduate schools or participates in five different graduate schools and have, with about a population of 300 to 350 graduate students and um, about 600 postdoctoral trainees there's continuing education needs. Um, there's also all of the clinical fellows, which are handled by the hospital. Um, but as I heard him say that, and I thought, you know, I had gotten a little bit more involved in teaching, especially in career and professional development with the postdocs and the graduate students, using my editorial background to teach about science communication, to teach some things about conflict resolution, and working with our manager of career and professional development on, on um, different ways to give and receive feedback. So I was getting more involved in teaching as it was on my own because I was really interested in it. So I started talking with Dr. Massigay about um, helping him to meet the needs of the education in the education space at the Sloan Kettering Institute. And the more we talked, the more we thought that this would be really synergistic. And so yes, about um, three years ago, so 2016, February 2016, I started as the Vice President of Scientific Education and Training. It sounds to me that you had already started going down that, that path anyway when you were using what you thought were your experiences as an editor, but ended up you were actually just, you were being a teacher, a trainer, and that just seemed to just dovetail nicely. Indeed it did, and so um, I'm soon to, to post, um, I just filmed um, a version of that class that I teach um, to be posted on the JCI around um, how to best prepare yourself and prepare your, your published works. Um, but do a lot of teaching together with my colleagues from anything on science and social media, women's issues, um, diversity issues. We talk a lot about professional skills, um, negotiation, creating LinkedIn profiles and CVs and resumes, um, negotiating um, the academic job search and uh, different boot camps on that. But furthermore, one of the things that I work with my Sloan Kettering colleagues on is teaching skills building classes in computational biology or things like proteomics and flow cytometry, image analysis, um, any number of different things that, that trainees and even some faculty could really use to advance their science. So we have set up a lot of, of courses for people to take, not for credit and also not for a fee, but to help them to advance their science and make sure that they're at the cutting edge. Now that's, that's helpful, I think, when you make an investment in not only your trainees, but also your faculty that's, you're all in, and I think that's really very, very important. Exactly. Yeah. So what are the kind of things that you said, you're editor at large for JACI, so could you tell us a little bit about the kind of things you do in that role? Sure, um, it's at this point, I serve as uh, somewhat of an institutional memory because I've now been there for 15 something years um, and handle a couple of pre-submission inquiries just from my network and I represent the JCI at a few different meetings. But largely the one thing that I do for them is a video interview series called Conversations with Giants in Medicine. As I noted, the JCI moves every five years. And so when the journal did move to Duke and UNC, a man named Dr. Howard Rockman, who was editor-in-chief of the JCI during that tenure, 
had this idea when he was applying to be editor-in-chief to start this quarterly interview series, just to hear from the legends of science and medicine about their thrills of discovery and what they were like as children, and just to be able to learn a little bit more about the person behind um, the magnificent discoveries, and you know, just really loved this idea. And it, I think it might have been one of the, the cherries on top for his application and why he then did get to um, host the JCI at Duke and UNC for those five years and was asked to become editor-in-chief. So we were talking about what could this format be and you know, how could we make this work and how could we afford it. And so we rolled it out starting in April of 2012, I believe. Um, uh, Harold Varmus was the first interview that, that we did, and I've gotten to meet so many phenomenal scientists and physicians who have you know, been at the heart of some of our most massive discoveries that, that textbooks are written about, a lot of Nobel laureates and um, Howard Hughes investigators and things. I just uh, got to interview George Church was the last one that was posted, um, but Francis Collins, um, Bob Lefkowitz, Brown and Goldstein, um, Paul Greengard, Cornelia Barkman, um, any number of really phenomenal scientists. And I've heard a lot of really interesting stories, um, some sad ones, but mostly some really odd ones and really happy ones. And they've been really great for, for making sure that, um, you know, for those who watch or even read a condensed version of it that's printed, that it shows that these are real people who oftentimes, you know, were not born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they had to overcome adversity or, you know, the, the kind of grit and gumption that they had to put into becoming successful. It's funny how small the world is because you're, you're throwing out names. So Harold Varmus was the NIH director when I was a postdoc there. Paul Greengard was the postdoc advisor of my brother-in-law. <laughs> and in fact, when my brother-in-law passed a couple years ago, uh, I asked uh, Dr. Greengard if he would write a few lines that I could read at the memorial, and he replied to me in less than an hour. He's an amazing man, and um, for a little while after we did that interview, especially because um, I worked just right across the street from Rockefeller University, I would have lunch with him from time to time just to catch up because, um, you know, I found him to be such an interesting and engaging person. Um, and. We kept talking and, you know, I think a year or two after that, he even published another cell paper. I mean, the man's still um, really at the top of his game when it comes to science. And, you know, he was really fascinating. He was telling me about like being in sack races as a child and where his competitive spirit came from and, you know, playing Scrabble with his wife, who's a very uh, renowned artist and things. So yeah, he had some really entertaining stories to tell. It's funny how folks come from so many different backgrounds and you'd never guess. Like, for example, you could have somebody who's just a phenomenal violin player, but they can also, they're also semi-pro baseball. Yeah, indeed. In fact, there was one person who I interviewed who's actually, I know you're based in Indiana. He's in the Indiana College Basketball Hall of Fame. Paul Greengard? His name was um, Dr. Robert Schreier, who is now based in Colorado, but he um, was behind a lot of... Um, what we know about um, kidney and, and fluid retention and fluid balance, electrolyte balance. No, that's, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's been really interesting to me and really um, helpful to me to, you know, in terms of connections that I have and just 
the opportunity to meet these phenomenal scientists and have some small role in being able to tell their stories and or introduce their stories to the rest of people who might not ever get a chance to meet them. So it's been really fun for me. As, as I think about it, and where you are able to interview these, these folks and you have those opportunities, do you ever have graduate students or postdocs uh, from Memorial Sloan Kettering who you kind of mentor into some of that area in science communication and uh, what kind of things do they do? No, absolutely. I mean, I'm super passionate about making sure that people understand you cannot be a good scientist without being a good communicator as well. So I teach um, a couple of different classes. One that's the six hour class where the first two hours are talking about writing um, for science in terms of uh, manuscripts and publishing um, in the scientific literature and people get homework. They have to write a title, a cover letter and a press release about a manuscript so that they learn how to write for three different audiences and then we go over those. But then the second half of the class, um, we talk a lot about personal presentation um, in terms of scientists talking to other scientists, how to introduce yourself, how to deliver an elevator pitch or even longer. And then we go through a whole exercise where the people in the class take turns introducing themselves, either to me or to one of my colleagues, who's playing the role of Dr. Thompson or Dr. Massagay, so that they are pretending to introduce themselves to, to others. Because I think it's really critical for trainees to know you're going to need letters of recommendation no matter what position you're going on to, what fellowship or grant you're writing for, and it behooves you to develop relationships with lots of different people in terms of collaborations and just, you know, over the course of your life, you're going to have to introduce yourself so many different times. And so being well prepared to be able to do that makes a lot of sense. So we go through, through all of that. I teach a separate course on both writing and speaking to lay audiences about science because it's a lot more about using analogies and metaphors and how to best present yourself, you know, how to stand with your, you know, how to give a good handshake, how to stand properly so that you're exuding gravitas instead of, you know, shrinking into yourself and not appearing to have a really good command of, of your topic. So, there's um, some amount of, to, to get to answer your actual question, yes, there's a lot of mentoring. Some of it is structured mentoring through these classes that, that we have people take. I think we, we teach um, scientists talking to scientists four times a year and the one for lay audiences two or three times a year. And we also run it at least once or twice for faculty to also have that opportunity. And in that case, we bring in donors um, for them to, to talk about their science with so that they have actual people, you know, like a cocktail party style setting for people to talk to each other. And then once a year, we round up everybody who's taken all of the classes and invite a bunch of faculty and we go to our student and faculty club and it's sort of like a controlled release into the wild and they have to introduce themselves and talk to just fel uh, other faculty member from MSK and so that they get more experience and comfort in talking to different people. They get more comfortable in, in talking to different people so that they are more willing to do it at a conference. Um, you know, scientists and physicians are usually pretty nice, especially to someone of a trainee age. It's just, they're not gonna necessarily go up and introduce themselves. So you have to, you know, you know, stir up your, your confidence and your pride and just go up and introduce yourself to some of the giants of the field. and most of the time they're going to be really kind in return. 
you made me think of something, as you said, you gotta pull yourself together and do it. As you know, most scientists are introverts. How do you get them out of that shell? Because you have some that are more on the introverted side than others. And, but uh, what about those who are <clears throat> very much so on, in, in I for the Myers-Briggs uh, scale? I think that's a, that's a critical point. You can't push someone too much. You can't necessarily just throw them into the deep end of the pool um, and expect that they're gonna swim over to the extrovert side. I think you do have to be really careful about encouraging them um, both positively as well as constructively and honestly. Um, getting people, so I, we, we advertise these classes, but mostly people sign up by a word of mouth um, that, you know, someone in the lab has taken this class and they tell somebody else like, oh, you should really take that. You know, I think she'd be able to, uh, Ushma and her colleagues would be able to help you to figure out what's your narrative around. How are you going to talk about that? And how are you going to feel most confident in doing it? So we encourage a lot of people that way. I mean, I think that, you know, so I'm sitting here in my office in New York City, there's, you know, several chairs across from my desk and there are a lot of trainees, especially those who are on the job market who come by and both there's job counseling, but also personal counseling around, let's make sure that we're having good conversations because there was one person who came to my office and was talking about um, how she felt like a bit of a failure on her last academic job interview. And I was asking her about different things. And I said, well, and how was the dinner? And she said, you know, nobody really said anything. And I said, you know what, I think you lost the job right there. You know, if you, you spend hundreds of hours with your colleagues, you have to know that these are people who you want to hang out with and talk to and be part of a team with. And if you can't muster that kind of conversation, you're going to be at a real disadvantage. So we spent the next couple of weeks, she just came by and we just talked um, about different things. I'd ask her to just look around my office and say like, oh, where did that painting come from? Or where did this cup come from? Or, you know, just forgive me for a second and in interrupting you. Like I see that poem that's right behind your monitor. Where did that come from? So just, you know, trying to make sure that people are really good at conversing, especially if they're introverted and making them feel comfortable. There are ways also even just to plant your body. Like how do you, you know, come up to a desk and put, um, one elbow down so that, you know, I'm, I'm a very handsy kind of a speaker. My hands are usually always really active, but, you know, trying to train yourself to come into a room, especially when you have a, a chair that moves back and forth, to just make sure that you plant yourself so that you exude a little bit more confidence. So sometimes it's a matter of if you're an introvert, at least projecting, even if you're terrified inside, that you are more confident. These are the sort of things that we try and work on with our trainees in order to help them overcome um, and just practice, practice, practice. You know, you're, you're never going to get comfortable at speaking to, to groups if you don't at least try. Right. And some people say fake it till you make it, but really you have to develop into somebody who ultimately can handle that type of situation where it's truly you. You can be a little bit uncomfortable but it's necessary and the more you do the easier it gets i believe sure i think that's that's the critical thing to say as well the more you do the easier it gets and so whatever opportunities you can either create for yourself or seek out in order to do that 
is going to be what ultimately makes you a better communicator and a better speaker and more comfortable with doing it as well. So, uh, my last question is with regards to somebody listening in, a postdoc graduate student who is wondering about trying to go down a different path be, beyond academia and wants to in, advice from you in terms of what can you do? Let's say this person doesn't have, the place they're at doesn't have all the resources that MSK or Indiana University has, but yet nonetheless, they are interested in potentially going down the road of a, a non-academic career path. What would you tell them? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think we do benefit from having, um, you know, a careers uh, office here, a career and professional development office, but um, if you didn't have that at your own institution, there are, are a couple of things that I would recommend. First, Twitter. Um, social media can be a really great place to even at least find out about what's the zeitgeist of going on in a field. Who are the contribute? Who are the people? Just part of the conversation. And what are things that people are talking about that appeal to you, so that you can narrow your search to a couple of specific lanes? You know, to towards figuring out like, am I really engaged in science policy? Is it science communication? Is it being a medical science liaison at a company? Do I want to stay within science? Am I really interested in teaching? So Twitter is the sort of place where everybody's talking about all of those different things, and you can find groups of people and find out a little bit more about those narratives. And then to the extent you're willing, engage with those people through informational interviews. So that's the second tip other than, you know, following people and exploring your interests um, by being part of a conversation or at least following somebody else's conversation is then going and approaching some of those people that you've identified who are in fields that you're interested in to just ask them for an informational interview, whether whether you're able to go and physically sit in their office and talk to them or even just on the phone and say, hey, I have a number of questions that I would love to ask you about because I'm very interested in this field. Because if somebody came in and talked to me perhaps about being an editor, I would know where those jobs are posted and who's hiring and what sort of qualifications that you would need. And I don't mind having that conversation with people um, if they're interested. Obviously, it's going to be a little bit um, the sort of thing where I'm going to be in the driver's seat of the time and how much time I would have to devote to that kind of a thing. But um, I would also say there's the opportunity to um, follow things like nature careers or science careers or the new scientists where those um, magazines and or journals have um, careers counseling and just a whole venue there for people to write columns about fast-moving fields or opinion pieces around what it is they like about their specific field or they commission a lot of content around things that are changing like being a teacher in Japan or um, what does the pharmaceutical industry need like are they only hiring MDs these days or are they hiring PhDs or what are communication jobs like um, within private industry or let's say you want to go into venture capital so that's also a, a different place where you can find out a little bit more and um, the journalists and or science writers have done some of the work for you in digesting you know how to how to engage or or where to find out more information so i'd like to thank my guest dr ushman neal for sharing the steps she's taken in her career to ultimately land as the leader of scientific education and training at memorial sloan kettering 
I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. You can see these on the IUSM Pathways YouTube channel. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences and how they use their education and background for the greater public good. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.